listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. If everyone could go back to their seat and... Open their Bible to John chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 13 through 25 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. And please stand for the reading of God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus said his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, good morning. It's good to gather with you today. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And I'm excited this morning to have Jeremy McLean here. Jeremy is the pastor of Mercy of Christ Fellowship in Washington, D.C., And Jeremy was here a few months ago uh, preaching God's word over us, and so I was grateful that he was available to come and hang out with us this morning as we continue on in our series in the Gospel of John called Seeing Jesus. So Jeremy, why don't you come on up, brother? I'm going to pray for you. And uh, Jeremy's going to come up at the end of the service as well uh, just to give us a little update on what's going on with their church plant and ways that we can be uh, praying for them and serving alongside them as well. Uh, But I'm excited to sit under your preaching this morning. So let's pray. Father, just give you thanks, just grateful for Jeremy and his family, grateful for just their faithfulness in proclaiming Christ. And God, I'm grateful that we get to sit under his preaching this morning as he opens up your word, as we get to see Jesus today. I pray, God, that you would bless him as he preaches and bless us as we sit under the preaching of your word today. May you be glorified, may you be honored. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 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 It's a blessing to be here with you all this morning to sing God's praises and now to um, interact with God through his word. You all are in a series on um, going through the book of John, the gospel of John. And as you all know, the, the main purpose of the gospel of John is to, um, that we may see Jesus. The Lord made sure this gospel was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing that you and I may have life, may have life in his name. The goal of this gospel is for us to see the historical Jesus. And as you see the historical Jesus, to be captured by his wisdom, his authority, his life, his teaching, his love, his mission, 
And then as you're captured by his glory, for you to put your trust in him so that you can have life and you can be saved. And so that's what we're going to, that's our aim for our text this morning as we are in verses 13 to 25. God wants us to have life. If we're going to have life, we must receive Jesus. And what we're going to see in Jesus' day is that he has a zeal for worship. He has a zeal for worship. You and I were created to worship the Lord. He's worthy to be worshiped. Revelation chapter 4 verse 9 makes it very clear. You, O Lord, our God, are worthy to be of the glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by him all things exist. He's worthy to be worshiped. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, we are commanded, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. He deserves to be worshipped. We're commanded to worship. Worship is what gives us life. Worshiping God is really life. That's what we're going to be doing, eternal life forever, worshiping the Lord. So Jesus has a zeal for worship. And that zeal is derived out of God's desire to be worshipped, right? And so throughout history, God has always had a people to worship him. And he's also always given them regulations to worship him, on how to worship him. And so we get a little bit, of, a little glimpse of that in our first, the first verse that we're going to have, as, of, of verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So here we have Jesus and the disciples, who we'll find out later, um, are in Jerusalem in the temple for the Passover. In the book of Exodus, you will read that the Israelites had been enslaved to Egyptians for hundreds of years. And to deliver them from slavery, God raised up a man named Moses, and, um, and Moses acted on God's behalf to deliver Israel. So through Moses, God did many signs and wonders to try and get the Egyptian king to, to surrender and to give them over. And, and as you read the book of Exodus, one thing you will see is that he kept saying, let my people go so that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may serve me. And serve is another way to say worship, right? So let my people go so that they may worship me. The Egyptian king didn't want that to happen. And so the Lord did one final uh, sign, and it was the Passover. And so he directed angel to, to, to pass over the land of Egypt, and wherever the angel did not see blood over the doorpost, the firstborn son within that house would die. That was the Passover. And that act humbled the king because the king of Egypt's son died that day. And at that point, the king of Egypt lets Israel go. He let them go. And Israel was now to go out and to serve the Lord. That's what they're celebrating right now. The Lord told them to remember that day. And he gave them a law to remember that, that great Passover day, to remember that deliverance. And so they're now celebrating the Passover. And they're doing it in Jerusalem, a place where God had designated for them to worship. And then they're doing it in a temple. God had given them 
a prescription on how to make the temple so that it could be a place where sacrifices would be made and where he would make his presence felt and where he will go and where he would meet his people. The temple of God was the central place of worship and service to God. It represented the seat and the holy presence of God. So when possible, the Jews who had been scattered now uh, had traveled to Jerusalem far and wide to, to seek God's presence, to pray, to make offerings, to hear God's law taught to them, to abide with the Lord. And they always did it on special occasions, on many festivals, and they would do it on the festival of the Jewish Passover. The temple was the place where God's glory was. It was his house. It was the place where he dwelt. And this is why Jesus is so beside himself when he walks into the temple. He's so outraged because because when he and the disciples walk into the temple, what they see happening in the temple should not be happening in the temple. The problem is not that he saw animals. The animals needed to be around so that sacrifices could occur. The problem is not so much about the money changers, though they probably did skim a little bit off the top when they had to uh, exchange the currency so that the, the right type of coinage could be used in the temple. The main problem is that all of this business is happening inside the temple. The problem is that they're doing business in the temple. In the temple, he found the animals being sold. In the temple, he found the money changers doing their work. And that's not what the temple was made for. The temple was made for worship. Inside, the animals were to be sacrificed to God. Inside, the temple money was to be offered to God. Inside the, the temple, peop, inside the temple, people are supposed to be zealously seeking God, seeking his face, praying and worshiping, not running a market. So look at what Jesus does. Look at his response in verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus is angry. He's heated. He doesn't just find a whip. He, he makes a whip, of course, and then he goes, and he's, he's driving the animals and driving everything out of the temple, the huge oxen, driving them out, the sheep, he's driving them out. And just so you, can, so you can get a sense of how furiated he is, he picks up the money and pours it out on the ground, and he, he's flipping tables over. And he told the people selling the pigeons what he demonstrated to everyone, everyone by his actions. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Take these things away. Don't make my father's house a market. This isn't a shop. It's a place of worship. 
the place where God is to be honored. Now, you might be thinking this is a little over the top, Jesus. This is a bit excessive. And you're right. This is over the top. It is excessive because God deserves over the top, but he deserves excessive praise. Excessive praise befits the upright because God is glorious. And they were interfering with the worship that belongs, belongs to God. Sure, he, you might say he could have done this with a little more gentleness, but if you saw someone, if you saw someone suffocating and unable to breathe inside of a room, would you want somebody to take their time and try and find the keys and then go to the, to the lock gently and open it? Or would you want someone to kick the door in? They were suffocating the life of worship out of the temple. They were drowning out the praise and the adoration that belongs to God. They were stifling service that belonged to God. They were distracting people from seeking God. The worship that God deserves, the worship that humans were created to give, the worship that brings people life was being hindered by the actions, by the business that was being done in the temple. And Jesus, knowing the importance of worship, knowing the glory that God deserves, knowing how men were created to worship the Lord, is zealous for worship and cleanses the temple. And actually, this was long overdue. The temple should have been cleansed. Someone should have been came and done that. But no one had the guts to do it out of fear of the authorities. And no one had the passion to do it because, because their souls had become uh, 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 spiritually cooled by the apostasy. No one had the novice to do it because they didn't have the mind of God. No one had the authority to do it because they didn't own the house. But in comes Jesus, the one who feared no one but God, the one who had perfect and holy passion for God because his soul was without sin. The one who had the perfect knowledge of God because he only did what his father told him to do. The one who had the authority over the temple because he was God's son. Jesus comes with the heart, with the soul, with the authority to cleanse the temple and he drives them out because he has the right to do so. Because it was his father's house. And because he knows how much his father deserves proper worship. And whether you like it or not, I can throw trash around my house. I can ask people to leave my house, and it won't be sin because it's my house. And if you're a robber, please believe, I won't ask you to leave nicely. I will throw you out of the house because you're threatening life. And these people were, were glory thieves. They were robbing God of his glory. So it was only fitting that the God's son, that Jesus would throw them out of the temple and, and kick the oxen and the, and the sheep out of the temple. What you see in Jesus is a glorious, a zeal for worship a zeal that we all should have. 
Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The text they are referring to can be found in Psalm 69, verse 9. And, it was, and in that psalm, King David expressed such a longing and affection for God's glory that when people spoke ill of God, he said it hurt him. When people weren't worshiping God correctly, it, it brought him shame. Zeal for God's house had consumed King David. But as the disciples thought about this passage in Psalm chapter 69, verse 9, they looked at the action of Jesus and they said, but, but here is someone who, who, who has an even greater zeal than David. The Holy Spirit helped them to see that, this, that Jesus was, was fulfilling that text in a far more significant way. Jesus was a greater David. Calm down, Jesus. Calm down, Jesus. You're supposed to be meek. Calm down, Jesus. You're, you're supposed to be gentle. Calm down, Jesus. You, 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 you might get yourself killed. But in a way, Jesus is saying, I can't calm down. The honor of God is too great for me to calm down. The worship of God is too serious for Jesus to calm down. Life is too important. Worship is too important. Zeal for Jesus' house, zeal for, for Jesus' father's house consumed him. And again, family, we ought to have that same zeal. Zeal for worship ought to drive us to worship him with fire. We ought to have a, a, a strong passion when we worship the Lord and when we follow him. In Romans chapter 12, verse 8, he Paul instructs them to, for a leader to lead with zeal. In chapter 12, verse 11 in Romans, Paul tells the church, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and to serve the Lord with zeal. In Titus, he says that the church is supposed to be zealous for good works. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2. He wants them to be zealous in their giving. The church ought to be filled with people who are passionate and zealous and on fire and boiling over with praise for the Lord because they know how much praise ought to be given to him because they know how worthy he is. Praise the Lord for you all. I, I see a zeal in here. I see a zeal that makes you get out of bed when it's raining. I see a zeal that makes you sing songs, even when you can't sing, no offense, <laughs> to me. I see a zeal when you, when you give to churches, generously when you don't really have that much. I see a zeal when you all serve others. Pray that the Lord will continue to, to, to fan into flame the zeal that this church has. I pray that you all would continue to, to, to pray that the Lord would, 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 would give you all more life and more zeal for his name.
Jesus has a zeal for worship. We see it in the way that he cleansed the temple. We also see it in the way that he, how he becomes the temple. So after Jesus cleanses the temple, look at how the Jews respond. So the Jews, verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jews here, that's a reference to the Jewish authorities. And notice they weren't interested in whether or not they were wrong for doing business in God's house. All they cared about was authority. And so they wanted Jesus to show them some type of a sign to prove his authority. They wanted Jesus to perform some miraculous act that would convince them that he had the authority to clean out his father's house and to restore proper, proper worship. They were concerned about seeing signs, but they should have been concerned about worshiping God correctly. They should have been worried about serving God. They should have been concerned about drawing near to the Father. And they didn't need a sign for that. They had God's word. They had his law. And if they had have obeyed God's law from the heart, they would have been worshiping properly. But instead, their hearts didn't want God. Their hearts truly resisted God. And therefore, to deflect, they said, show me a sign. Their request for a sign is not for them to believe, but it's actually because they don't want to believe. It's ironic. Jesus performed many signs to show that he was the son of God. The book was written so that people could see Jesus' signs and then believe that he's the son of God. And yet when these prideful, arrogant, hypocritical Jewish leaders ask him for a sign, Jesus is not going to give them anything. Because he knows that their request is from an evil heart. They ask him for a sign and he will refuse. Instead, he will point them to a greater sign. Look at verse, verses 19 and 20 and 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Herod had begun to rebuild the temple for the Jews, and up to that point, the building project had taken 46 years. While standing in the temple, Jesus made a very veiled and kind of cryptic statement. He said, you want a sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And they had no clue what he meant. Their minds were concentrated on the physical building they were in, and so they mock, and so they laugh, and so they, 46 years, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? They didn't, have a, they didn't have a category for what Jesus was talking about. And really, at this point, nor, nor did the disciples. The leaders thought that he was talking about the brick and mortar Jewish temple that they were standing in. And that's why they mocked him. It's also what they bring up at his trial. And so if you go back and read, go and read Matthew 26, verse 61. When they're at Jesus' trial... They try to bring false witnesses against him, and they say, this man, speaking of Jesus, they say, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. 
what Jesus said was etched in their minds. And there was some reality behind it, but it wasn't truthful all the way because Jesus did not say, I will destroy, I am able to destroy the temple. He says, you destroy the temple. What did Jesus mean? Well, we further learn that Jesus wasn't talking about the temple, he, the physical temple. He's talking about the temple of his body. That's what verse 21 says. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When Jesus says destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up, he's making a, a prophetic declaration filled with deep theological truth. Jesus is saying he is the greater temple. In John chapter 1, as you all studied, it said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word came into the flesh, and, and, and it dwelt amongst the people. The glory of the Lord dwelt amongst the people. Where was it dwelling? It was dwelling in the body of Jesus. That's why Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, says that in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus is the radiance of, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Inside the veil of Jesus' body was the full glory of God, just as the temple was the, where God would make his glory present. So in John chapter 4, when, when the woman is at the well, Jesus tells this woman, he says, you, there's going to come a time where, where, where you're not going to worry about who worship on this mountain or that mountain. You're not going to worry about where you worship in Jerusalem or whether you're not worshiping in Jerusalem. And why is that? Because of Matthew chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. He was talking about himself and his ministry. temple of God was the place where people went to seek God. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The temple was the place where people would go to be spiritually cleansed. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The temple was the place where people went and prayed, and they prayed with confidence, believing that the God who was on the mercy seat would, would, would answer them. They, they would be heard. And in John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The temple was the place where people would take their sacrifices like they did this Passover and, and, and have them slaughtered for their sins. Jesus went to the cross and died for man's sin and guilt and made a once-for-all sacrifice for man's sins. Jesus is the greater temple. In him is greater worship. So Jesus was not talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. And Jesus was prophesying about his death. The same Jewish leaders that were destroying this physical temple with their wicked acts would eventually try to destroy Jesus with their wicked acts. 
and they would put him to death. But Jesus said, I will raise it back up again. Just like in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, I lay down my life on my own authority and I raise it back up on my own authority. And that's exactly what happened. They handed him over to die. He willingly went to the cross, died, and then tomb is empty. Burial clothes folded up. Neatly set aside. Stone rolled away. Jesus up from the grave, just as he said. Destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. And that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly why our Jesus gets all the glory. That's why he gets Magnificent worship from us. He allowed himself to be destroyed unto death. And he rose himself back up from the grave because he is zealous for God and he is zealous for true worship. He doesn't want false worship. He doesn't want incomplete worship. He wants true worship. None of us has perfectly loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us have perfectly done everything to the glory of God. All of our worship has fallen short of God's glory. And all of our worship in many ways condemns us to death. Too often, too many times we've worshiped ourselves. Too many times we've worshiped created things rather than the creator. Too, many, too often we've done things to serve our best interests and not the interests of the Lord. And our dirty worship doesn't deserve God's blessing. It deserves God's curses. And if you think Jesus is mad now when you see him flipping over tables and throwing people out of the temple, just wait until you see his fury on judgment day. When he throws death and the devil and all false worshipers into the lake of fire. He is zealous for worship, and he's so zealous for worship that he pours out his anger and wrath on false worshipers. But we also see that he's so zealous for worship that he decided to bear the wrath of God on the cross for people's sins so that their worship could be acceptable to God and so that they could receive life God deserves your worship. God made you to worship him. You get the most out of life when you worship him. You get eternal life when you worship him correctly. Jesus secured your acceptable worship to God by offering up his life on the cross and by raising from the grave. And he did it so that all people could worship him. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto me. Jews, Africans, Asians, Russians, Americans, every tribe and every tongue, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and their worship will be accepted through Jesus Christ. And we know that to be the case because he rose from the grave. 
Look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. We have an advantage here. We have the story right in front of us. They didn't have that advantage. Took them a couple years to figure this out. And the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them and opened their eyes to see the truth, and when they saw Jesus resurrected from the grave, then it clicked. He is the Christ. The scripture said, Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, that death would not be able to hold him in the grave. It said that he wouldn't see corruption. And this Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Death couldn't hold him. He did not see corruption. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant would, would, would one day suffer and die, but then he would also see his posterity. Jesus rose from the grave, and now he will see them. The scriptures spoke truthfully. And we can believe the scriptures, and we can believe Jesus' words. He said he, would, he said he would die. He said he would rise. That's what he did. The scriptures and the word are true. Our call then is to believe to believe what we have in front of us, to believe on the Son, to believe that he is the Christ, to believe that he is the Son of God, and then to receive life. And when we believe, we have to make sure that our belief is genuine. Look at verses 23 and 25 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Jesus had performed many miracles and signs during his ministry, and not all of them are recorded in the Gospel of John. But the people at that time saw, the, saw his signs, and many people were amazed at his signs. They called him a great teacher. They flocked to him for healing. They saw him as a miracle worker. The, crowd were, the crowds were amazed at his life. And some, out of their amazement at the signs, professed to believe in him. But their belief was empty, and Jesus knew it. Because Jesus was God in the flesh, he knew everything about all people. He knew what was in them down to their very souls. He knew that though they said they believed in him, that they really didn't. They just loved the signs. He knew their hearts. He knew their motivations. He knew their purposes. He knew that their belief was vain. So he didn't trust their trust. He didn't believe their belief. And so he would not entrust himself to them. God's not interested in crowds. He's not interested in fans. He's not interested in huge gatherings. He's interested in zealous, true worship that comes from the heart. And praise the Lord. Now that we're in Christ and not he that he is the greater temple, 
He's the greater sacrifice. He's the greater priest. He's the great mediator. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to offer sacrifices. Christ is our Passover, and we can take the Lord's Supper together. And remembering what he has done for us as an act of worship. And we can celebrate how he took away our guilt. And now he's, how he has now made us acceptable to God. Praise the Lord for the seven years that he's given this church. I pray that he keeps this church going long past Justin and Edward, and I pray it goes on until he returns. And I pray that he will continue to entrust himself to this church as you all continue to believe on him and worship him with zeal and with passion with the praise that he deserves. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. We thank you that you purchased our souls. You purchased our praise. You purchased us for yourself, Lord God. And we desire to give ourselves you, give, you have given us life, you've given us breath, and we want to pour out our life and our breath back to you in total praise, Lord God. We ask that you would accept our praise. We thank you that you do accept our praise through Jesus Christ. And if anybody in here does not know you, Lord God, we ask that you would, by your spirit, open their eyes to see Jesus as the Christ, the living Savior, and they would turn to him and find life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. It's uh, good to be reminded that all of us are worshipers in one way or another, but it's through what Christ has done for us that we're able to be true worshipers of God. And one of the ways that we are able to be reminded of that and practice that as we gather together every week, as we sing songs of praise about God and to him over one another and with one another, we also come forward to take communion and be reminded that Christ is the true Passover lamb, that he is the true temple. And so I want to invite you to come forward this morning. If you've placed your faith in Christ, if you truly are believing that he is who he says he is and has come to do what he said he came to do, that you can come forward in worship this morning to eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for you, and drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for you, and that this would be an act of worship and an act of faith for you this morning. And as you even go back to your seat to eat and drink and then to lift our voices, that we would continue to worship our God and King but that worship wouldn't stop today. But as we go out of this place into the community, into Fairfax and wherever God would have you go this week, that you would continue to worship him and him alone. If you don't yet know Christ, we're grateful that God brought you to gather with us this morning. Uh, we want this to be a community, a place where you can come and you can ask questions about who Jesus is. And you can talk with others about what does it look like to actually follow him and what does it really mean to worship him. But if you don't yet know Christ, we just invite you to hang out in your seat, not come forward and take communion, but instead think on where your worship might be this morning. And if you're ready to start that relationship with Jesus, to place your faith and trust in him, that you'd confess that to God this morning. And instead of taking communion, you take Christ today. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to come forward whenever you're ready and come forward in joy, rejoicing, zealous for the fact that God has rescued you. So come forward whenever you're ready. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.